Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. House Republicans take a stance on New York City's crime, blaming the Manhattan DA for soft on crime policies. Meanwhile, Democrats push for stricter gun legislation. A small town in Alabama is mourning the loss of four lives in a shooting on Saturday. Find out what information police are releasing. The FBI revealing what it calls a dark secret at the heart of New York City. How the Chinese Communist Party uses an undercover location to interfere with American democracy. House Republicans are proposing new actions on the federal debt limit. We'll tell you what House Speaker Kevin McCarthy had to say in a speech on Wall Street today. And intense fighting in Sudan. Over 180 people have died and more than 1,800 are injured as two of the country's top generals battle for power. Violent crime in New York City. And is it on the rise because of District Attorney Alvin Bragg's policies? The House Judiciary Committee met this morning in the Big Apple, but Democrats on the committee said the hearing was a sham. NTD's Arlene Richards reports. One hearing, two perspectives. That's what we heard today at the House Judiciary Committee's hearing on New York crime. Some calling on Congress to pass tougher gun reforms to address the national gun crisis and saying New York City is safer than other large cities. Other witnesses testifying that District Attorney Alvin Bragg's soft-on-crime stance is the reason for the increase in crime and saying nothing's getting done. Republican Chairman Jim Jordan on Monday said keeping communities safe has always been a central focus of the House Judiciary Committee. He called on the Manhattan DA to uphold the law fairly saying in Manhattan, the scales of justice are weighed down by politics. For the district attorney, justice isn't blind. It's about looking for opportunities to advance a political agenda, a radical political agenda. Rather than enforcing the law, the DA is using his office to do the bidding of left-wing campaign funders. But the committee was divided on what the real problem is. Jordan pointed to a memo he said was written by Bragg in January 2022, directing assistant DAs not to prosecute certain low-level crimes. The memo also stated that armed robberies should not be prosecuted as felonies. Instead, they were to be considered as misdemeanor larceny unless someone was shot during the course of the robbery. He said the DA cared more about the perpetrators of crime than the victims. Representative Zoe Lofgren, a Democrat, said she was worried that the hearing wasn't addressing guns. Our colleagues on the other side of the aisle have prevented any kind of sensible gun violence legislation from passing to keep us safe. Other Democrats called the proceeding a sham. The chairman is doing the bidding of Donald Trump. A mother of a homicide victim said politics wasn't the issue. Victims can care less about anyone's political ideology or party. Neither do criminals. They don't go up to a person and ask them if they're Democrat or Republican before they bust them in the head. Minutes before the hearing, New York City Mayor Eric Adams held a press conference. He said New York was the safest big city in America. Arlene Richards, NTD News. And speaking of crime, authorities in Alabama are making headway in the investigation of the shooting on Saturday. They've identified the four victims, but still no word about a possible suspect. Authorities in Dadeville, Alabama on Monday identified the four people killed in the Saturday birthday party shooting. 
They are 23-year-old Corbin Holston, 19-year-old Marcia Collins, 18-year-old Phil Dowdell, and 17-year-old Kiki Smith. Dowdell was a high school senior and football player. He was brother to the birthday girl. He had recently locked in a scholarship to play for Jacksonville State University. Dowdell's coach says he never dreamed something like this could happen. Why? Why did it happen? You know, we don't, they don't have any enemies. Collins was best friends with Dowdell and was planning to attend Louisiana State University in the fall. Smith was a high school senior who was looking forward to attending the University of Alabama. Apart from the four victims, police say at least 28 people were injured during the shooting, including 15 teenagers who were shot and hospitalized. Among them, five were in critical condition and four were in stable condition. The shooting happened at a Sweet 16 birthday party held at a dance studio Saturday night. Keenan Cooper, the DJ at the party, says it was too dark to see who the shooter was or where the gunfire was coming from. Dadeville's mayor says guns and violence don't have a frequent presence in the town of around 3,000 people. He says gun control would prove as futile as trying to control illegal drugs. If you want one, you can, you can purchase one, just like the drugs. Uh, people still get drugs. Community members gathered at a vigil on Sunday to pray and support each other. Police have not released any information about a possible suspect or motive behind the shooting. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. And for some more hopeful news about a shooting, a victim in Kansas City, Missouri, was released from the hospital Sunday. The teenager was shot and seriously wounded by a homeowner last week. 16-year-old Ralph Jarl's father told the Kansas City Star that his son is responsive, making good progress, and being cared for by his mother, who is a nurse. Yarrow was shot after mistakenly going to the wrong house on Thursday night to pick up his siblings. Police said the homeowner shot the black teen twice outside the residence. According to property records and police statements, the homeowner is a man in his 80s. Police took him into custody but released him pending further investigation. The police chief said the information they have now doesn't indicate the shooting was racially motivated. Benjamin Crump, one of the civil rights attorneys representing Jarl and his family, spoke to CNN today. The family's number one priority, John, is the health of their 16-year-old child, Ralph, who had everything going for him. He was a musician. He was an honor roll student. He had dreams of going to Texas A&M University and then for simply ringing a doorbell and being profiled he is shot in the head. On Sunday, hundreds of people marched, protested, and called for justice for Jarl. Attorneys for the family are urging prosecutors and law enforcement to identify and prosecute the shooter. And in Chicago, Mayor Lori Lightfoot defended her handling of what she called teen trends. Over the weekend, three teens were shot and at least 16 people arrested in two rowdy gatherings of teenagers on the city streets. We'll dig into her stance as well as the incoming mayor's response with a man who grew up on the south side and is now executive director of Concerned Communities for America, Daquan Bruce. I spoke with him earlier today. Daquan Bruce, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for joining us. Now, this past weekend in Chicago saw two nights of unrest with three teens shot, 15 people arrested amid a stream of youths pouring through the streets. 
It's not an unfamiliar scene for Chicago, though. So what's your response to these latest events? Yeah, this uh, this attack on the city, um, and we, I say attack because we have to characterize it as it was. Yes, it was teenagers. Yes, they are youths, but they violently not only damaged property um, and the city, but they attacked people. Um, you know, innocent bystanders, people who were just there to enjoy the city, um, which is why we characterize this as an attack um, on the city. This was coordinated by individuals online in a public forum. Um, and this, you know, speaks to a history in Chicago of these types of radical, um, oftentimes progressive um, activities that happen in the face of either civil unrest, but in this case, this was just a, a, a regular kind of scheduled uh, disruption in the city. And it's a testament to the former and the current uh, leadership that the city has um, that this type of unrest is allowed to happen. Outgoing Mayor Lori Lightfoot responded to the events of the weekend saying that parents should know that they're responsible for their children's actions and that instilling respect begins at home. How do you see her response? You know, this is one of the few things that I will, will say that I agree with Lori Lightfoot on. This is a matter in which parents are responsible. And I want to make that very clear that there should be no little to no circumstances where a parent shouldn't know where their children are, shouldn't know what their children are doing. Parents need to understand that just as these children hopefully will have consequences to their actions, they themselves have a responsibility to monitor and understand what their children are up to for their safety. And if they don't do that, then they also must face consequences. So Mayor-elect Brandon Johnson has come out saying that while the behavior over the weekend was unacceptable, uh, it's not constructive to demonize young people who have been starved of opportunities, he says. What do you think is driving this behavior? Yeah, I, I, I want to call this demonization. You know, calling out and holding people accountable for the actions they commit is not demonizing. And I, I want to make that make that abundantly clear that no one here is saying that because these kids are black, because they come from, may come from, we don't know exactly where, but because they may come from the lower income parts of the community, that they are, you know, inherently bad. I'm one of those kids. You know, I grew up in a very poor uh, part of, of Chicago, and I would never, no one should ever say that just because a person comes from those communities that they are inherently bad and prone to such violence because that's not true. But calling out criminal activity, calling out irresponsible behavior, and calling out bad leadership is the responsibility of the community to set forth a standard to say that this type of behavior is not and will not ever be acceptable in our community. Um, it's a threat to the city, it's a threat to public safety, but more importantly, it's a threat to the people committing the acts themselves. All those children have bright futures ahead of them, but if they continue down this road, they themselves, you know, will be either imprisoned or, or worse. This was a riot. And it was a, also a very kind of grotesque celebration and one that showed that people are, are really turning the city of Chicago into the new age Gotham. And I think that it's very important as a leader, as the future mayor of Chicago, that you need to stand up and support the police, 
support law enforcement, but also support communities themselves and let and let them decide on how you know we should be uh, covering our city with support, not taking things away, not not defunding the police, and not striving them of resources because that's only going to lead to more problems and more issues. Daquan Bruce, Executive Director of Concerned Communities for America. Thank you so much. Thank you. And on a different track now, the FBI makes unprecedented arrests of Chinese agents who are working for the regime's overseas police stations here in the U.S. Officials say it pulls back the curtain of China's long arm. NTD's Iris Tao tells us why. A dark secret in the center of New York City. That's what officials say as they announced the arrest of two Chinese New York residents who were accused of working for the Chinese Communist Party and running a Chinese police station here in New York. Watch. This nondescript office building in the heart of bustling Chinatown in lower Manhattan has a dark secret. The Chinese National Police appear to have been using the station to track a U.S. resident on U.S. soil. FBI officials and federal prosecutors say the Monday arrest make them the first law enforcement partners in the world to take into custody those involved in one of China's overseas police stations. And the one in New York, they say, mainly target democracy activists who are critical of the Chinese regime. Now, the allegations you just heard sort of pull back the curtain on the PRC's audacious and illegal attempts to harass dissidents and stifle free speech in our country. And that's not all. Aside from spying and physical harassment, the Chinese regime is also accused of creating thousands of fake personas on U.S. social media platforms. And the goal is to suppress critics as well as to spread propaganda. The official PRC disinformation suggested the weakness of U.S. democracy and foreign policy sought to sow political divisions in U.S. national elections and conveyed conspiracy theories regarding the U.S. government's alleged responsibility for the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic. And officials say the high-profile revelations on Monday served to send China a clear message. That we are on to you. We know what you're doing. And we will stop it from happening in the United States of America. Reporting from the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of New York, Aris Tao, NTD News. And more on the Chinese Communist Party's suppression tactics in the U.S., the Department of Justice is also charging 40 members of China's national police force. The charges are related to a coordinated harassment campaign against U.S. residents critical of the regime. Documents unsealed today allege the purpose of the task force was to target and silence Chinese dissidents on a global scale. And on the economy... House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says Republicans plan to raise the debt ceiling for a year. He addressed the state of the economy in a speech at the New York Stock Exchange today. No strings attached, debt limit increase will not pass. But since the president continues to hide, House Republicans will take action. McCarthy says the House GOP will raise the debt limit for a year, but it will be tied to spending cuts. He proposes a return to fiscal year 2022 spending levels at some government agencies and limiting growth to 1% in those agencies over the next decade. The Republicans also propose to rescind any unspent COVID-19 relief funds. That could save up to $60 billion. 
McCarthy plans to provide more details when he speaks to the Republican caucus on Tuesday. Republicans are hoping to vote on their proposals in the next few weeks and put pressure on the White House to negotiate. And in international news, over 180 people have died and nearly 2,000 have been injured in intense fighting in Sudan. Two of the country's top generals are battling for power over the resource-rich nation. NTD's Jason Perry breaks down the situation. Come fast, come fast. We tried to close to our place. They started raising the gun, then we ran away. See, army is there. Sudan residents even saw a fighter jet flying over the capital, Khartoum, which appeared to fire a missile at the airport. <laughs> On Saturday, two of the country's top generals began fighting for control over the resource-rich nation. One of the generals, who is also the country's leader, Abdul Fattah al-Burhan, is using the Sudanese military to fight a rebel paramilitary group within the country. That rebel group, led by General Mohamed Hamdan Dagalo, is known as Rapid Support Forces, or RSF. It reportedly has about 100,000 troops throughout the country. In December, the two generals signed an agreement to establish a civilian-led transitional government, which would take away some power from both generals. But before the transition took place, fighting broke out between the two groups. So far, over 180 civilians have died and over 1,800 civilians have been injured. I spoke with geopolitical analyst and the president of Scarab Rising, Irina Sukerman, to learn more about the situation. Do you think it's a good idea for the RSF and the military to be under civilian control? I mean, that would be the ideal scenario uh, because the uh, the country needs an economic and political transition into some sort of stability and normalcy. Having two power-hungry warlords struggling for power or um, uh, controlling the entire, the, all the private resources in the country, this is not doable. And she explained that tensions in Sudan were high for weeks before the fighting started. This last few weeks of buildup should have sent a signal to the international community that fighting could break out, but there was no serious mediation attempt. The White House and others have been caught by surprise on Saturday when the fighting broke out and nobody even knows for sure who really started the fighting in this case. On Monday, Secretary of State Antony Blinken called for an immediate ceasefire. Uh, people in Sudan want the military back in the barracks. They want democracy. They want a civilian-led government. Sudan needs to return to that path. Jason Perry, NTD News. G7 foreign ministers are in agreement on what Russia must do. Japan's Foreign Minister Yoshimasa Hayashi gave the update after a summit in Japan. In the G7 foreign ministers meeting this time, we had a candid and detailed exchange of views on the situation in Ukraine. The G7 agreed that Russia must withdraw all troops and equipment from Ukraine immediately and unconditionally to continue tough sanctions on Russia and to continue strongly supporting Ukraine. In addition, a focus of the meeting was concern over Beijing's aggressive stance on Taiwan and more broadly in the Indo-Pacific region. Hayashi said the foreign ministers want stability in the Taiwan Strait and a peaceful resolution to cross-strait issues. He also took time to give the French foreign minister's perspective that France also wants peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. 
This follows French President Emmanuel Macron's statements, which were perceived by some Western leaders as too weak towards China. And coming up, some people are wondering whether it's fair to ban or restrict companies like TikTok. But a U.S. senator says restricting foreign threats is a matter of national security. And in NFL news, he led the Eagles to the Super Bowl while finishing second in the MVP title. But now Jalen Hurts is the highest paid player in the game. Details of his new contract and more coming up. As we heard last week, cities and states are starting to implement various bans against TikTok over security concerns. And now on the national level, a U.S. senator is trying to ban TikTok and similar companies over the same concerns. But some people are questioning whether the move is fair or hinders freedom of speech. NTD's David Lamb has that story. U.S. Senate Bill 686, also known as the Restrict Act, aims to restrict foreign threats. It also requires the Department of Commerce to identify and refer to the president any covered holding, like stock or security, that poses a risk to U.S. national security and the safety of U.S. citizens. The president may then compel divestment of or otherwise mitigate the risk. U.S. Senator Mark Warner on Friday said he introduced the bill due to concerns over TikTok, a company under the Beijing-based ByteDance. China law as of 2017, which requires any Chinese company at the request of the Communist Party, that they can get everything. You know, they, 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 unfortunately, in China right now, is, uh, Chinese tech companies, they're not obligated to their customers or their shareholders. At the end of the day, they have to be obligated to the CCP. He believes there's a national security concern that data is being collected and that the Chinese regime can use the app as a propaganda tool. But others see it as an attack on Asians and the Chinese-American community. Speakers reference Singaporean businessman and entrepreneur Shou Tzu who has served as CEO of TikTok since 2021. We were troubled by the fact that there was a specific uh, targeting of Mr. Chu and saying that he must be an emissary or some an agent for the Chinese government. Notwithstanding the fact that several times during the hearing, he pointed out that he was a Singaporean citizen. In addressing the question about how the bill would protect freedom of speech, Warner said the problem lies with the fact that the company is based in a foreign country run by a communist regime. Meanwhile, on the local level, the Southern California city of Westminster recently banned TikTok on government devices, and Montana became the first state to pass legislation for a complete ban on the app. If signed into law, it would prohibit the use and download of the app within the state. So far, 37 states have taken some sort of action against TikTok. And in December 2022, Congress voted to ban TikTok from federal government-owned devices. David Lamb, NTD News, California. And now to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. Thank you, Steph. The Philadelphia Eagles and quarterback Jalen Hurts have agreed on a five-year, $255 million contract, according to ESPN, that will make him the league's highest-paid player. Hurts just recently led the Eagles to the league's best record and a Super Bowl appearance while finishing runner-up for the MVP. 
The contract reportedly includes $179 million in guarantees, which falls short of the $230 million guaranteed to Cleveland's Deshaun Watson, but the $51 million average annual value tops Aaron Rodgers for the highest overall. And at the Boston Marathon today, Evan Shebet of Kenya, who won it last year, crossed the finish line first again today with an unofficial time of two hours, five minutes and 54 seconds, which is the third fastest in the event's 127 year history. Meanwhile, on the women's side, Helen O'Beary, also of Kenya, took the women's title. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, a lot of playoff action. First in the NBA, the Sixers host the Nets looking to take a 2-0 lead after coasting to a Game 1 victory on Saturday. Meanwhile, the defending champion Warriors play at the Sacramento Kings, hoping to tie the series up at one game apiece after a close loss in Game 1. And for you hockey fans, the NHL starts their playoffs tonight with a quadruple header. Boston Bruins, after arguably the most dominant regular season in NHL history, open against Florida. The New York Islanders play at Carolina. Dallas hosts Minnesota. And finally, MVP favorite Connor McDavid and the Edmonton Oilers face the LA Kings in Edmonton. And finally, for you baseball fans, 11 games on tonight, including the Texas Rangers, who will start new ace Jacob deGrom on the mound. The two-time Cy Young winner is 1-0 in three starts this year after signing a five-year, $185 million deal with Texas in the offseason. He and the Rangers will play at Kansas City. And that is it for your sports news today. Steph, back to you. Thanks, Dave. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox. Good night.